Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, the podcast brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. This week, I had an opportunity to have a conversation with Dr. Karina Jimenez-Gomez and Dr. Lauren Bollier to really discuss some of the cultural competencies that and cultural needs that can go into providing services. Some of you may be aware that there's discrepancies in diagnoses and the availability of services across the country. But one of the things we always need to be discussing and have at the forefront of our minds is making sure when we are going into somebody's home or we're inviting them into our clinics, that we're being respectful and honoring their family culture and dynamics. I think it's really important for us to continue to have this conversation. And I appreciate the opportunity for myself to learn and also for our community to learn from them as well. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Jimenez Gomez and Dr. Boyer, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks for inviting us. So I have to say that, um, frankly, cultural competency is is getting some long overdue attention. And it's great to hear that we're starting to have more conversations as it relates to behavior analysis. But uh, before we dive into that, can you first tell us what are culturally responsive behavioral services? Well, uh, you know, to define that in one hour is um, definitely a cumbersome task. So I'll try to, you know, maybe briefly discuss it and then we can get more into it as we go into some of the other questions. But I think um, to provide culturally responsive services, the first step is to do a thorough self-assessment of your own culture, your own biases, your own values, what you think is important. So to really understand yourself. And then it's um, really collaborating with the family going in, asking questions, understanding that people have different ideas, different values, and um, really making sure that you collaborate with the service delivery so that you come up with the goals together, that you identify the, the treatments together, that you don't just prescribe things based on the research literature, but it's really more of a collaborative relationship with families. Um, I mean, there's, again, there's a lot that goes into it, but I think that's my, my quick answer. I don't know if Karina, Karina, do you want to expand on that a little bit and, and tell us a little bit in your words uh, what that means from the parent perspective also? Yeah, so I think Lauren did a great job of um, giving a big overview of what it is. I, I think that there's a big role in knowing your own values and where you, your position in life. And then because that's the lens through which you see the world. And then even if you're regardless of your training, so I'm a behavior analyst. I'm a scientist, but I'm also a mom, a lot of other things. And I think all those things play a role into how I see the world and um, assumptions that I make about what children should be doing or how parents should be parenting. And those things will determine what I identify potentially as things to work on with my clients. And, and I think what Lauren was emphasizing is the fact that I, if I'm aware of these things, then I can navigate the relationship with the families in a better way, as opposed to sometimes uh, assuming that what my thoughts and my, my values are the correct way or the only way, just because I'm, I'm a trained professional. 
my perspective is also impacted by my own values. So it's not just impacted by my training, but also by my values. And having that at the forefront allows me to better navigate the relationship and be aware that what might seem like the best for me might not be the best for that family because I don't live in their shoes. And building that relationship is super important. It's just as important as being aware of what's the best intervention for a particular behavioral challenge. And I think that sometimes we overlook this relationship building and really getting to know the specific aspects of each family. How do people parent? What are important things to them? What are their goals and aspirations for their children? I don't know any of those things and I can't make assumptions. And I think that sometimes we overlook that because we we have a specific training that we think can override what the families value. And um, Lauren and I often talk about the importance that we place on independence for our own children. We're both moms. Um, I love it when my children can do things on their own. I, I really think it's great when they can clear the table, when they can, you know, do certain things like that, fold their laundry. My um, kids are not great, but you know, it's getting there. And <laughs> And that's really important to me. And because it's important to me, I might assume that that is important to other families and, and that just may not be how they, they want to live their life. And I think that uh, if we make a lot of assumptions, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. If I know my values and I, and I come with an open perspective of being one, one seeking to learn from the family, not assuming that I know everything that allows me to better serve family. Yeah. And I think too, just with that collaborative relationship, understanding our roles, like the family, they, they know their family, right? So they know the kind of the science of the family. We know the science of behavior. So we have to kind of come together and realize what we know and what we don't know. I think that that's really critical. I think becoming, yes, yeah, a more self-aware, you start to realize what you don't know right. and what you need to get more information from with the family. But I think from the family's perspective, too, they can also think of it and realize that um, the practitioner is coming with this particular set of values. So it might be confusing sometimes when they start pushing maybe communication goals or social goals and the family wants to work on something else. And so I think it's um, important, too, for the family to take in mind that, oh, right. So they're coming in with their ideas. I'm coming in with my ideas. We need to work together. Let me express what I want. And so kind of empowering families to be able to speak up and say, you know, I think that's that's um, that could maybe be targeted at some point, but I think this is really important for my family. Or, and I think that sometimes families might be less inclined to speak up and less asked to. So I think maybe empowering families to to really work collaboratively too. I like that the the analogy I used to use with families a lot was that they are driving the car and I'm in the passenger seat holding the map. Right. Yes. And so they're telling us where to go and we're discussing different ways to get there because there are multiple ways yes. to get there, to use that analogy. But but it's a it's a group effort and it's not me versus you or you versus me or us against each other. It's us working together for best outcomes for their child. Right. And sometimes, too, there's there's a lot of different you know, you don't have to do targets in a particular way, even if the behavior analyst presents them in a particular way. There's negotiation, right? So you could say, well, this one is a lot more important for my family right now. Um, and then you can reorder those. And same with treatments. A, a practitioner might say, 
oh, so this is the treatment I'd like to go ahead with. It's backed by the research um, and so forth. But realize that there's a lot of other treatments too. There's ways that might be slower, might be faster, might have more side effects. And so I think all of these things could be discussed with families. Um, so I, I think it's important from the family's perspective to realize it's not just there's not just one treatment for everything. There's a lot of different ways to go about things. So there is room to, to talk about what what's right for for each family. You know, as, as you're talking about this, I'm embarrassed thinking about when I first started as a behavior analyst. I was a special day class teacher before I was a behavior analyst. And so a lot of my original goals were very academic in nature. That was just the world I had been living in. And so it, it, you know, I didn't force that agenda, but I definitely brought that as my own, uh, my own bias at that time in my career. Um, so you, you brought up this concept of self-assessment. How, how can, how can behavior analysts and other clinicians sort of do a self-assessment and, and learn more about their personal biases and what they bring to the, to the table? Well, this is it's a, a lifelong process. I think we um, thinking that you've self-assessed and know yourself 100 percent is probably <laughs> probably means you're not ready. Um, there are a lot of tools online. There are workshops. There are just so many ways of doing this. And I think it's it's a lot of just reflecting on how your learning history impacts the way you navigate the world, what sort of things uh, you've learned uh, consequences that your behavior encounters. And there are many examples out there of um, me navigating the world as a Latina immigrant is different than you. And things that I might do might be met with resistance or punishment from the world, whereas you might not encounter it. And vice versa, right? There are things that you might do that might be punished that for me might be acceptable. And those things shape the way we navigate the world. And then we might start to build our own biases and our own kind of rules of the world. And sometimes we, um, we don't realize what those are. Just recently, one of my kids made a comment. They said something about um, one, one kid in their school did something that was normal. And we had a long conversation about what that meant. Uh, what does the word normal mean? Because normal is whatever you, you do, you assume that everybody else should do. Um, right. And I said to them, do you think that other kids think it is normal that we eat arepas on the weekends for breakfast? Arepas are Venezuelan food. And then they stopped, you know, my, my daughter stopped and she's like, yeah, I guess not. I guess, do you have a point? <laughs> you know, so it's all, it's all relative. And I think that we make so many, we overlook this so much. We just don't realize that every aspect of our history of our upbringing has shaped what sort of things are salient to us, what stimuli we, how we respond to stimuli in the world. And that impacts our professional life as well. And, and the reason I said it's an ongoing process is because you, you, to me, at least it's constant discovery of these things about my, my own history and how it impacts the work that I do, how I parent, how I teach my students, all of the things that I do. And it just never stops. And I think that uh, seeking different perspectives is really important too, because I, I might know more about a particular aspect of culture, but there are many other things that I don't explore in the same way because they're not part of my own background. So just seeking a lot of different things. That's so interesting. As you were describing that, the, the, 
normal is really an individual sport. That's really what popped in my head. And it's like, oh, that's such an interesting perspective. You you think that normal is everyone in society, you know, quote unquote, normal is everyone in society, but it's not. It's really individualized to you and your family and your family culture. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I think um, uh, this is um, a core of my parenting and a core of the way I live my life right now, you know, more and more every day. And I think that my daughter was able to label something as normal explicitly. And that framed the way she was viewing that specific event. But oftentimes we don't label it explicitly. And yet it really determines how we view the world and how we behave in the world. And, but we don't. And I think the self-assessment is that bringing to, to, to bear, bringing it to the surface, that there are things that we're labeling as normal, normative, um, the way of doing certain things. And once you do that, then you can start to navigate things a little bit differently. So if I, you know, the independence, for instance, that's just sort of what I see as normal. Uh, but it's not normal. It's just the way that I, you know, the expectations in my household for particular things. But it would be unreasonable for me to have a client of a seven-year-old and say, well, your child needs to start doing this and that because that's what is typical or normal or whatever. Right. Lauren, I have a question for you. Um, so we're talking about some of the tools for the self-assessment. Do you have any uh, preferred tools or any favorite tools that are available online? Is there, is there, are there resources available? Yes. Um, one website that I think is really great is the National Center for Cultural Competence by Georgetown University. So if somebody just puts that in the Google search, that will take them, you know, it'll probably be one of the first options. And there's a ton of resources in there, including a self-assessment section. So somebody can go through and do all kinds of different types of self-assessment, including professional self-assessment too. So how you work with clients, there's center-based ones to see if your center is inclusive. So if it has, you know, um, posters that depict different, um, different backgrounds and, you know, really descriptive things. So I would say that that's a really great online one. We also have a course that we created as kind of, as we are trying to learn more about cultural competence and cultural responsiveness and cultural humility, um, we took some of those resources that we were learning from and turned it into a kind of a continuing education event. And we have a self-assessment workbook of things that we pulled off of line, offline, but um, there's just so much stuff out there. So that's not even a comprehensive one. I mean, as, as Karina said, it's really a lifelong journey. So you have to keep kind of revisiting it and, um, and keep kind of catching yourself too when you're realizing when you're out and, and about and you're realizing that you're labeling people as normal or you're and again sometimes not not doing it um as explicitly as maybe her daughter is but we do it all the time right we look at somebody and we might think something because their behavior is doing something different than what we would do in that particular situation so really attending to that well why why am i responding that way is it really um are they hurting anybody is it you know People can be different. We don't need to all be the same. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And we'll put those resources in the show notes for anyone who's listening. But I, I agree. I mean, it's so much of a, you know, I'm just thinking about my journey and and my self-education. And it's it's a constant question of, you know, why am I thinking this way in this moment? And what am I learning that's that's that has me thinking that way? And do I need to shift my thinking or am I in the middle of shifting my thinking, getting towards a higher level thinking? Um, 
it's a lot to kind of juggle mentally, but I think it's a good practice for all of us, especially as we're going into people's homes or having people come to our clinics or providing Zoom supports. You know, the things that, again, may be important for me may not be for a parent. shift gears for just a, for a little bit and how you know after we've done a, a self-assessment and after we've done spent some time self-educating um how can behavior analysts make sure that they're delivering those culturally responsive behavior services what are some some key indicators that they're on the right track at least well i think um this we could go on for a long time <laughs> but i think um just kind of hitting on some it, it would be one to be collecting some demographics on the family, because, you know, it, this isn't just people that look different than us. You don't want to just assume because somebody's a different race. Oh, so this is a culturally diverse family. No, because cultural variables include religion. They include um, gender um, orientation, um, sorry, gender identity, sexual orientation. So there's a lot of different cultural variables that are not necessarily apparently visible. So sometimes I think it's it's really important to collect demographics. Um, I was talking with somebody maybe a week or two ago in the field, and um, they had asked me, but it, it won't be really uncomfortable to, to sit there and, and be asking somebody all of these questions. And I wholeheartedly agree. I think that, um, you know, what other fields have done is they give forms with the options to skip questions with explicit information as to why. So why do I need this information? I'm asking for this information just to better help your family. So you can skip whatever question you want. Just provide me the information that you think is going to better help, um, better me to help your family. So I think it's really important to be um, very clear at the beginning as to why you're giving them these forms to fill out. Very clear that they don't have to fill out. Uh, they could just skip the whole thing if they wanted to. But we're giving them the opportunity to report things that might be important, like, for example, religion. Maybe there's certain things about their religion that they really want you to know about. But you didn't even think to ask because you didn't think, well, it's not really part of the services I'm providing. Um, however, it might be. There might be ways that um, it could be related to the services. So I think that first step would be to assess demographics. Um, and I think, too, understanding if, if there's a family that's immigrated to the U.S. recently, understanding the linguistic needs or sometimes even just if they... Um, uh, English is, is not their first language. Understanding if they need interpretation or translation services, that's really critical at that um, that first initial consult. And so um, first step, I would say, would be the assessment of demographics. It also helps you become more aware. It brings you back to that level of awareness. Okay, so this, this family is a little um, different than my background, and I have to keep that in mind. And I have to assess, one, am I able to provide um, services to this family? And... Um, there's a really good resource now for practitioners um, in a new book by, edited by Brian Connors and Sean Propel. The uh, I have it right here. I just want to, don't want to get the title wrong. Multiculturalism and Diversity in Applied Behavior Analysis. And Dr. Fong has a decision tree in there that can walk the practitioner through to see if they're able to provide um, 
competent services, culturally responsive services. And so that could be something that could be utilized. But in order to do that, you have to know, you know, you have to collect those demographics. So I think that's kind of the first step. Um, I don't want to spend all the time talking about so Karina, I don't know if you want to add anything. Oh, those are great. I, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, so an example in my, in the clinic I direct here at Auburn University, we, our intake form has a section on um, asking people to share things that are important to them from their culture. So what holidays do they celebrate? So let's say, you know, uh, December rolls around and am I going to have all the kids make Santa Claus crafts? Is that relevant to them? Um, and all these little things that I might think are, are not important. They might be really important to a particular family because they may not see themselves represented in the things that I, I have in my clinic. So I think doing these, you know, looking around uh, your your space and seeing what materials are available for families. Do they see themselves represented in this space? Do they, is this a welcoming space for people from a range of different backgrounds? And I say space because, like I said, I have a I'm in a clinic. I don't go to people's homes, but uh, just I think making sure that the space is welcoming. Another thing that I was thinking as Lauren was talking is the um, how different cultural backgrounds may may lead people to interact with people perceived to be an authority figure differently. Mm-hmm. So if I if I go to a doctor and the doctor tells me this is the thing you have to do, it may not occur to me to to question it or to inquire about it. I might just say like, okay, that sounds terribly painful, but if okay. But uh, different cultures might be more willing to say inquire and ask questions and ask for alternatives and second opinions or you know those sort of things. So I think making the space safe for people to to do those sort of things, to inquire, to really assent to the treatments that are being offered, to really have the opportunity to to express their choice for particular interventions, even for clients who cannot verbally communicate those choices. There are we have the technology to allow everybody to express their choice for particular interventions. And I think we should be, we should be including those in the work that we do. Do they require some modifications in the way services are implemented? Perhaps. Can they be more at an extra step or two? Yes. But I think it's really important when you consider the, the well-being of our client and kind of that integrity piece of how we treat our clients and, and the families. And I think that that providing choices really gets at that collaboration piece of what culturally responsive services is all about. And I was, you know, maybe I just wasn't, I don't know, the the best student who knows, but um, when I was training to be a behavior analyst, I didn't feel like, I felt like I was taught to do the assessment, come up with the plan, go over the plan with the caregiver. And I mean, of course I asked them along the way, you know, I I interviewed them in the beginning, asked them about what, what they wanted to work on. But um, I let, I was, the way that I felt that I was trained was I let the assessment guide what I did. Then I would pick what I thought was the most, going to be the most effective um, treatment, which again, now that the more that I know it, that's not just based on the research literature, right? That's also based on my experience. So maybe I've had more success with a particular treatment. Um, and then I would go over it with the family and um, that's not, that's not culturally responsive services. Um, it's doing that, that choice. It's, it's realizing that there's actually a lot of ways to, to do it. 
and we can provide choices. We don't, of course, want to give them every choice, you know, because there, there's just, it would be overwhelming. It's like choice, choice overload. Um, but we could provide a couple choices that are empirically validated because, you know, that's behavior analysts. We have to use empirically validated treatments, right. They're empirically validated. And then we go over the risks and the side effects and the potential speed of, of, of treatment effects, because some are going to work faster. Some are going to work potentially a little slower. Um, a family that may say, you know what, I'm going to go for the slower, more gentler approach this time. Maybe after they try it and they see it's not working that well, they might say, okay, let's, let's try this other one that you talked about. And, um, and then they might be um, willing to try that. So it's important too, for the practitioner to realize that a, a, a fair, a family may choose a particular treatment, but then they may be open to changes if they're not seeing the changes that they want to see. Um, and I think that that's, so it's just really this, that collaborative it's, it's working with the family. Right. Right. What I'm really hearing from you both is creating a space with families to have open, honest conversations that at times may be uncomfortable, but are really valuable in, in helping us navigate the program for the families. Right. And I think that's really crucial. And so if you're a behavior analyst or an emerging behavior analyst or a soon to be behavior analyst or an aspiring behavior analyst or, or anywhere in the clinical field, I think it's important just to allow that space for people to express how they're feeling what's important to them and for you to be able to listen and understand and try to do that without any judgment. I think that's that's a, a big key in all of this is making sure that we are absorbing that information and doing the best we can to represent those families. Yes. thinking about those those of our audience who are in school and are becoming various clinicians what advice would you give them as they're starting their careers uh in, in making sure that they start off on the right foot and so that they don't do what i've done or what others have done in their career and kind of bring their own biases what, what advice would you give to them as they're starting their careers to make sure they're providing those culturally respective services i think really starting with that self-assessment getting training in cultural responsive services, cultural competence, cultural humility. So those are kind of the big buzzwords in this area. And so using those as kind of search features to, to find research on it. A lot of the, the research that I've read has been outside the field, although now our field is starting to pick up some speed um, with respect to focusing on these things, but um, there really wasn't much in the field on cultural responsive services for, for um, since, you know, I think 2013, Dr. Fong had some standards for cultural competence. And, um, but before that, there wasn't much on cultural responsive services. So I would say to really get the training to really focus on those soft skills that we tend to ignore in master's skills, uh, master's programs, you know, the soft skills with working with families, building rapport, um, interviewing skills. These are things that unfortunately are often neglected in many programs. Um, so I would say to really focus on the relationship building and getting that that training in that area, unless they're getting it at their their master's program. But I did a survey um, a few years ago and it, and it didn't look like many were getting that training based on that survey. So um, I think they'll, they'll have to probably step outside of their program to get it. Right, right. And it's a little more of a, to your point, Lauren, it's a little more of a broad 
it's a little bit sometimes those research are outside of the uh the world of behavior analysis right sometimes that research comes from various books and things within the community as a whole not just the behavior analytic community exactly and i think it's really hard for behavior analysts to do that because we're you know it's objective and we need everything behavioralized but realize that you can translate so you can read a study that's not behavioral and you can translate it we talk about the same things just in different ways so it's not that we can't learn anything from anybody else and i think that um I think that we need to to spend a lot more time. Behavior analysts need to spend a lot more time learning from outside of the field too, because they are light years ahead of us in thinking about these things and how, and what this means to working with clients. Um, so I think that there's a lot that we can learn from them. Yeah. So I'm curious for both of you. You know, this is obviously such an important part of being a clinician and being a service provider and making sure that we're respecting families. Um, but your project of learning and putting together a training module, what, why was that so important to each of you individually? For me, it was a personal need. I, I felt like I was, you know, I was reading things on my own and and I was trying to to change the way I teach the students in the master's program here at Auburn and the way I do the work in our clinic and the way I just kind of navigate the world. Um, last year was with everything that was happening in the world that there were, there were a lot of things that, uh, even though I felt like I had less time, I also had more time to kind of think and consider different things. So it was kind of like a personal project. And I knew that Lauren was interested in this. Lauren and I had briefly overlapped at a previous institution. So I just, I reached out to her and I needed a, a partner that I can bounce ideas off of, you know, somebody that I felt like. You know, I feel like Lauren, if I say something, she'll say, that's not, no, think about it again. Or, you know, or this is another perspective. This is another way of thinking about it. And I, that's sort of what I felt like I needed. I think that the self-assessment is great, but the self-assessment on your own, you can, you can cheat on it if you wanted to, you know, but it's nice that if you do it and then I can show something to Lauren and she can say, she can say, well, how about this? Or I read this article or I saw this thing that could really speak to what you're thinking and what you're saying. And I think that that, that led me to, to kind of grow personally. So to me, it was a personal thing. And then I saw the value and it became this mission to, to, to make sure that others were seeing this as well. And I think it's important to me because I teach students in the master's program. I feel like once you start seeing it, it's like so hard to unsee. When I was working at Regis College, I accepted a position to to be the director of the ABA program, which was just starting there. They were developing it or they needed somebody to develop it. And um, the the faculty there in the nursing programs, they were saying how um, they were developing these culturally competent nurses. And and I had never heard of the word cultural competence before. And so when I had asked them about it and they started telling me, you know, just in briefly, oh, it's when you you understand that the how culture impacts healthcare and you understand the cultural um, variables that each client or each patient brings to the brings to the healthcare encounter. And I thought, wow, this is so weird that I've never heard about this. I have a PhD now and, you know, uh, and I've never heard about this yet. And so um, I thought I want to start incorporating this into the ABA program that that was being developed, but then I couldn't find anything. It was in 2012. And, um, and I feel like, yeah, with, with Karina, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, and at the time, just to kind of get a little personal, I was also dating a, a guy who is an Italian immigrant. He's now my husband, but so I'm learning about cultural competence at work. And then I'm dating this guy and, 
and I'm seeing it in our relationship. And I'm like, just like, how did I not see this? Like how this impacts what we do. And, um, and then there was nothing happening. I figured, okay, something will happen in our field. Like it's going to come out. And then Dr. Fong produced the standards for cultural competence in 2013. I thought, awesome. So this is going to like set off, a set off some, some research, but then there was really nothing. And then she, she also, her and some others in 2016 produced another paper 2017, but nobody else was really um, talking about it. And I thought maybe it's because everybody knows about it and it's just me that wasn't trained. And so um, I went and did a survey and to try to see if other people were learning it and um, they weren't. So then I'm like, okay, so it's not just me. <laughs> and, and then with everything, as Karina said, with everything that was going on, um, there was a couple other things that, that had happened. And I thought, okay, I mean, I really want to, to work on a training to teach people about what cultural competence is. Um, and I also want to learn more about it as, you know, because that's the only way you can really be a good practitioner is if you know about this, you really can't like be a good practitioner with diverse clients. Um, if you don't know about this. So, um, when she reached out to me, it was, I was like, awesome. Cause <laughs> anything that you do, if you do it with other people, it's going to be better because, you know, as Karina was saying, as we can bounce ideas off of each other and we check each other too. We have two very different backgrounds. So we see things very differently. And I think it's been really helpful, um, in my process too, of learning more, um, about cultural competence and cultural responsiveness, just working with somebody else. And so really it's just to try to help, again, teach people like, what is it? Why is it important? And hopefully other people will start seeing it and then they can't unsee it. Once you see it, once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. I love that it started from a, a personal journey, right? I, it, really about self-education and it turned into an online training platform for various people. But I think that's so, it's so valuable for people. If you're listening and you have a curiosity about something, do some research and, and help advance our field, right? Whether it's with this topic or any topic, please, please do that. Um, but I want to talk about the, what is, tell us about your training. What does it look like? What, where can we find it? All, all that information. Our training is um, six modules that are, so a little bit of um, background. When we started working together, it, it it started as we should write a paper about this. This is just really interesting. I think, you know, we're learning so much. Let's write a paper. We started writing it. And then it was like, nobody's going to publish this because it's too long. <laughs> and uh, it was too long. So we said, you know what? We should we should make videos. And, you know, we we're kind of so it turned into this eight, eight CEUs that cover an introduction to the topic, self-assessment, how we conduct assessments, how we deliver treatment, how we provide supervision to trainees, and navigating the world ethically and in a culturally responsive manner. We feel like it sort of scratches the surface because there's so much to learn. We're still learning ourselves. And one of the, the things that we always want to highlight is that this is built from the perspective of these two people. So knowing that that's a limitation, it's always going to be a limitation. So if I talk about navigating ethical dilemmas, it's how I see one navigating ethical dilemmas with the limitations that I have as a person that has my, per my background, because I haven't experienced the world in the shoes of other people. So our training is one piece of a larger uh, journey 
for individuals seeking to expand their knowledge on this. We are in the process of launching it on Central Reach, and we are very excited about that. And the training consists of short videos that people watch, uh, questions that they, little quizzes that they have to pass, and we provide access to all the PowerPoint slides, to a very long list of references. There's the self-assessment workbook that Lauren referenced earlier, where we consolidate some of some of the self-assessment tools that we've found that we we like. There are so many more that we didn't include, but it's just to get people started on this journey. It's for people that uh, have their interest has been peaked this you know recently and they don't know where to start and are overwhelmed this is a great place to start for people who have already been on this journey and want to learn more this is another good resource for them yeah i love that i mean i think about doing a google search and the amount of hits that are going to come back you're going to get millions of pieces of information it can be overwhelming for people to start so this this is a great resource uh lauren where can we find where can we find this it's on you i know karina mentioned it's going to be on central reach pretty soon is yeah. it available in other places um well no we're going to exclusively offer it through central reach we did have it through thinkific which is where some people have already taken it um, but we're moving off of that platform um and we're hoping it's going to go live tomorrow but which would I guess when this gets published, it will already be live, but um, hopefully at Central Reach. So um, we don't have the link yet because they're working on the landing page right now, um, but that's where it will be offered. Great, great. And we'll make sure that link is in our show notes. Oh, one thing too that we're changing when we move to the new platform, we will have some interactive discussions because one thing that we couldn't have in Thinkific was having some live components, but we really think that's important. You should be able to talk about these things and there's certain things that come up. And um, so that will also be incorporated into the central reach where every few months there'll be a live component where we get together and we can talk about some um, different issues with related to cultural responsiveness. I hope that th what I'd like to leave people with is to just, even if they don't do our training, do something, you know, go to the national center for, Cultural Competence, Georgetown University, that's an excellent resource. Just start somewhere. And um, if, if you want to really do good quality behavioral services. Yeah, just take the first step, right? Whatever that first step is, just take it. Yeah. And on the caregiver side, knowing that there are behavior analysts that are really working hard to make sure that this is that we're, we're well trained to serve diverse groups. Mm -hmm. And just because the the person you're working with right now doesn't offer that, we'll then seek some services with somebody else. There are many people that are doing this work that are really learning how to best serve the populations where they live. So I, I live in Eastern Alabama. I am not from Eastern Alabama and, and learning about Eastern Alabama culture, learning about what types of, people live around me has been really important in connecting with my community so that I can better serve that community. Um, I am a big proponent of really working in partnership with a community. So for, for caregivers, I think knowing that this exists and this is out there and that they can seek services that really speak to them. I think that sometimes when we think about behavioral services, we can, it can seem all very pragmatic and, you know, data-driven, which it is, 
but there's also this compassionate care quality of life side of things that sometimes gets overlooked or not spoken about enough. And that's where culturally responsive care falls into. And I think that I don't take my kids to a pediatrician that I don't think that we don't jive with. Right. So if I can pick my pediatrician in a way that I makes me feel comfortable, well, I would do the same with a behavioral specialist that is providing services for my child. And that's sort of what I would want to to send that message, just because I think that um, sometimes people just aren't aware of that possibility. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Something for people to think about. One last thing too, one we didn't touch on. So we've been talking about culturally responsive services more at the practitioner level. So how practitioners can be more culturally responsive, but there's, again, this is why we could talk about this forever, but there's also um, cultural competency just isn't about the practitioner level. It's also about the agency right. and provider level. There's a ton of assessments out there too that um, providers, uh, so agencies can um, assess their their actual agency, the practices and policies, making sure that it's an inclusive environment, making sure that um, that they have a culturally competent agency. And so we also provide some of those assessments in our CE training, but you can also find those online too. So um, there are other ways to do it, but it's not just at the, the provider level. It's also at the agency level. Um, that's important as well. I think that's really the goal for everyone is to be able to help families help their children achieve their highest potential. And this is a way for us to help do that. Karina and Lauren, thank you so much for your time and your insight and the work that you've done. Our field is better for this and I hope we can continue this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did and that you learned as much as I did. One of the things that really stood out to me was this idea of normal is really our own and it's impacted by all sorts of invisible factors, our experiences, our assumptions, our opinions, our, our upbringing, our childhood. Um, but something we need to recognize is that our idea of normal doesn't necessarily fit those around us. Another thing that stood out to me is that we really need to get comfortable in being uncomfortable and we need to get comfortable in knowing that we all have biases. That doesn't mean that we're bad people. It doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong. It's just something that we need to recognize and we need to continue to push and learn from. I think they both said this in the conversation that there are opportunities for them that they, they catch themselves making a mistake or, or phrasing something in the wrong way. But it's an opportunity for them to learn and get better. And I think that's the way we all need to view this conversation because this is a lifelong process and it's not gonna be done. We can't just check the box and move on. We have to revisit this conversation and learn from our continued interactions with each other and with those around us. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, feel free to send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.